Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today per usual because I'm thrilled to be here. Once again, we have the privilege to speak with another fantastic guest and our listeners are going to really enjoy this one because he's experiencing a bit of celebrity right now with his appearance in a very popular Netflix documentary. But first... I want people to experience how you're feeling, Tim. How are you today, sir? <laughs> well, thank you for asking, and I sure as heck didn't expect the sir. I'm doing well today. Thanks for asking, and uh, I'm really excited to speak with our guest today, Javier Leva. We had a fantastic conversation with him about his podcast, Pretend Radio, and you can find out everything about that at pretendradio.org. He's doing a new series on a cyber stalker. The story is just bonkers. You definitely got to check that out. But also, Lance, as you mentioned, he was recently in a Netflix series. It's called Don't Pick Up the Phone. It is a fantastic series. I think it's three episodes from Netflix. And Javier was a big part in bringing that story to a documentary. It's a fantastic series. And Javier speaks on that. But he also speaks about the inner workings of his investigation and his coverage of this particular hoax, which is all about how people as a whole generally will comply with whatever they think someone in authority is telling them to do. And it just escalates to this point of being so disturbing. So if you haven't seen the documentary yet, just know that going into it, it is a bit of a hard watch, but very worth it because it'll blow your mind what these adults in a position of authority will do when they think that they're speaking with somebody of a higher authority. He also recently did a series on Pretend Radio about Frank Abagnale, who is the real-life person from the movie Catch Me If You Can, that the character that Leo DiCaprio played. And one quick bit of housekeeping news, Tim. As you know, we have been trying to raise some money for our nonprofit that Bruce Maitland is in charge of, Private Investigations for the Missing. They provide investigative services for families who have missing loved ones who cannot afford to pay for these services on their own. We are trying to raise $5,000 by February 3rd, which is National Missing Persons Day. And we're going to have one final push on February 1st, Wednesday, February 1st, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The docket is filling up. We got a lot of great guests that are going to be on. They're going to help us reach that goal. So stay tuned for more information on that. Yeah, very excited about that. You can go to investigationsforthemissing.org to donate. Please, we need all the help we can get. And Tim, some people need some help as well finding our episodes without these ads. Where can they go? Crawlspace Premium is the place to get every single episode of Crawlspace ad-free. And you get our weekly bonus show where we have a lot of fun speaking about life behind the scenes, but also about the cases that we cover on the show. So you don't want to miss that. And you can subscribe now right in the Apple Podcasts app. So do it there, or if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm. And don't worry, we won't tell Apple. And Tim, speaking of Frank Abagnale, he reached out recently wanting to know where to follow us on social media. Is there some place that we can direct him to go? <laughs> yeah, there is. He can follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We really hope you enjoy this interview with Javier. We're going to break quick for commercial here. We'll be right back. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! 
with fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Javier from P- Pretend. How are you today? Guys, I'm doing awesome. It's so good to be back on the show. It's been a while. It's It's been a couple of years, probably, like two or three years. It feels like forever. Welcome back. How's 2023 treating you? Man, I've been busy kind of uh, busting, you know, Frank Abagnale's gonads, uh, the guy from Catch Me If You Can. I did that not too long ago. That was kind of fun. And I was on Netflix recently, which is kind of a new experience. Let's get to that in a minute. I just have to get something out of the way. Right before we started recording, I was looking at your website, pretendradio.org, and we didn't even discuss that we were going to talk about this but i have to get it out of the way you have a piece about being an air guitarist oh yes yeah yeah because you see that's also pretending to be someone else the shorthand to my show is that it's a show about con artists but con artists are pretending to be somebody else too but so are air guitarists i love it and i'm so fascinated by air guitar because it's being taken very seriously now there's competitions remember back in when you were a kid like it was a goofy thing to do and now it's like professional well, you know what's so funny? I, I just did it as just an episode to keep things light. I didn't think it, there was going to be a lot of meat to it. But like you said, it is a very intense competition. I still am not clear how they judge the quality of the air guitar because it just all seems kind of goofy to me. It's like a worldwide phenomenon. Sometimes it's on ESPN. The guy that I recorded the episode with emailed me not too long ago. He goes, hey, there's going to be a, an air guitar championship near you. You want to go? And 
I, I was busy and I couldn't go, but I, I would love to go. That's on my bucket list for sure. I would 100% go to that. I would pay for a ticket to go see that because it's fascinating. I don't know. You ready for this one? It strikes a chord in me. It really does, but but a chord that you can't really see. Or here. You know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or here. But you know, I know that this is not what we were supposed to talk about, but I'm now learning guitar and I'm left-handed and so is my daughter. So we bought a left-handed guitar, but I realized that when I play air guitar, I play right-handed air guitar, but I play left-handed real guitar. Isn't that weird? I can't do the rest of this interview. Yeah. Are you a right-handed air guitarist or left-handed? I'm a right-handed air guitarist and a right-handed regular guitarist. I must have my wires crossed or something. But. I actually do the Jimi Hendrix right-handed guitar upside down with my left hand when I air guitar. <laughs> there you go. But that's the great thing about air guitar. You can't mess it up, really. I mean, it's always in tune. Well, unless you get burnt. When I play air guitar, I light my guitar on fire. And so it's burning while I'm playing. But but the real flames. Real flames, no guitar. Uh, well, depends depends on your perspective, I guess. We should start an air band. Yeah. <laughs> and this is not how I expected this interview to go, which is awesome. Well, good. That was great. Yeah, I love that episode, actually. I, I'd love to do silly stuff like that every now and then just to kind of shake things up. Well, tell us about your new series on a cyber stalker. Yeah. So my new series, I'm doing something new that I've never done before. So I produced the first 10 episodes and released them all at once on Apple Podcasts' subscription channel and on Patreon. And I'm going to release them weekly on my regular feed. But man, people can't get enough. Like they listen to that first episode and my subscription has gone up crazy. I was just looking at my statistics and this has never happened in the five years that I've ever done this show. If you get like an 80% consumption rate of an episode, that's a good thing, you know, like oh, wow, people hung in 80% of the time all the way through the episode. This is like 110, 116, 120, which means that people are listening to it over and over and over again. And it's because it's a real mystery. It's kind of like a game of Clue. You have the cyber stalking that's happening. You're being led to believe that it's the doctor's husband, which is very strange. Like, why would a doctor's husband stalk one of the patient's families? It doesn't make sense. But the more you dig into it, you're like, wait a minute, maybe it's this family the stocking themselves, right? Because now the evidence that I'm like starting to figure out, it's all pointing back at that family. But who in that family? Are, is it the parents? Is it one of the kids? And every single one of them has motivation to be the stalker. Even to this day, I don't even know. I have narrowed it down, I think, the two possible suspects. I've been investigating this story for almost two years now. I didn't want to release it because it's kind of like a slow burn. The longer I wait, the more things happen, you know? But I felt like after two years, it was finally time to, to tell the story. My fear is that I don't know how it will end because there's I released the first 10 episodes, but there's at least three more coming. And I hope that I get closer to that resolution. And I think that now that the episodes are are out in the wild, that's going to change the dynamics too, because people are going to listen to it. People that are involved in that case and new people will come out of the woodwork and maybe we'll get closer to the truth. This is the biggest mystery I've ever worked on for sure. Tell us how it began for the couple in the series, because I find a lot of these cyber stalking details incredibly unnerving. You know, they get under your skin because they have personal information that they shouldn't know. Yeah. Tell us how this began. It began very innocently. This family, they're Jehovah's Witness, very conservative 
middle-aged family. They have five kids. Four of them are adults. Two of the kids have disabilities, right? And even though they're adults, they go to pediatric doctors, right? And one of the pediatric doctors, the doctor's husband started messaging this family. The dad in, in the story, he's a photographer. And they're like, hey, I see you're a photographer. Do you mind taking pictures of my wife and I and our family? Like, this is the doctor's husband saying that. And they're like, sure, we'll take pictures. And slowly, more and more people started messaging this family. And it was revealed later that it was this one person who they believed was a doctor's husband. And and it went from being nice to really harassing. Like, I'm going to kill you. you know, I'm outside your house. I'm watching you. The husband's a milkman. So he, he's like, I'm following you. You know, it started off like sending pizzas to their house, but then sending okay Cupid dates to their house. And it went all the way to swatting where the stalker called the police. The police, you know, spread outside their house at 4.30 in the mornings, pointing guns at their house saying, get out of the house. I mean, every time the stalker comes back, it, it escalates more and more and more. And whoever this person is, is really deranged. I have the text messages that he sends and, and they're really like talking about like terrible things that I probably shouldn't even air on the, on a podcast. You know, it's so explicit. That's interesting. I wasn't going to ask this question, but it popped into my head when you said you probably shouldn't air on a podcast. Are you concerned that somebody else might hear this if they have an inclination to do something like this? Because I feel like some people will hear this and if they have criminal tendencies or even devious tendencies, there's no like victim in the sense of no one's getting physically hurt. But the potential is there. And so that was a big concern for me. And that is why two years went by and I never did anything with this because I didn't want my podcast to actually make matters worse for this family. Like, why would you involve a podcaster? You know, like that doesn't make sense. Like that's the last person you want to involve if you're actively being stalked. So I was very cautious about that. The reason why I moved forward with this story is that I don't believe that this families actually being stalked. I do believe that those messages are coming from inside that house. It's a hoax. If this were truly a stalking story, I would not touch it. But I think that by airing these episodes, I'm giving people who are could potentially be stalked in the future or are being stalked now tools on what to do if they ever are in this situation. Like for example, if you're stalked, you're S out of luck, man, because the police, they are not equipped to deal with cyber stalkers. It is so hard in the digital age to trace a call. You know, they're using voice over IP numbers, so they're they're virtually untraceable. You know, so what do you do when the police can't really help? What are things that you could do? So like get a VPN, change your passwords, get a password manager. So along the way, while you're listening to the story, you're learning what to do as an individual to protect yourself from ever experiencing something like this and what to look out for. Have you ever been cyber stalked? Well, that, that's interesting that you asked. No, I, I haven't personally, you know, I think us as podcasters, we're kind of out there in the limelight a little bit or in the public life. And and we have probably bigger exposure than, than most people do. But no, thank God. Fortunately, I have not. But in this case, the stalker uses burner numbers. He sends messages and then the next day he he has a whole new number. So I was able to get a fresh number from a message that he had just sent that family. And I en started engaging with that stalker so that he could direct his messages and his rage at me. Like I purposely walked into the crosshairs for this story, which I had to like really think about, like, do I really want this? I started communicating with it and 
ironically, the stalker engaged with me a little bit, but did not want to continue, which I think is very telling. Like, why wouldn't the stalker take a hit at me? You know, I'm putting myself out there. So that's another interesting aspect to the story. Did you tell the stalker that you were a podcaster? Yeah. I said, you know, I'm, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And I want to talk to you. And yeah, we had a whole conversation and everything. Have you had any pizza deliveries to your house no. recently? That <laughs> No, thank God. Would you eat a pizza that was mysteriously <laughs> delivered to your house? <laughs> I would not eat a pizza. That, I would not eat anything that I didn't order, by the way. What if it was authenticated? If it's some sort of, uh, you know... Bitcoin or no, what do they call that? Uh, not not Bitcoin, but NFT. Yeah, some sort of digital pizza. I would probably <laughs> consume that while playing air guitar. <laughs> now, tell us about this Netflix series. Don't pick up the phone. I was I was streaming this the other night, and then all of a sudden, you walked in and had a seat right on camera. <laughs> I was like, out of what? nowhere. <laughs> it was. It is kind of out, out of nowhere in episode three, a little bit, especially because I wasn't expecting to see you. Well, a lot of people weren't expecting it because I kind of kept it on the DL, you know, because the producers listened to my series on the McDonald's prank call. So for those of you who haven't seen the show, it's called Don't Pick Up the Phone. And it's based off of these prank calls that happened within a 10-year span, really. This one guy acting as law enforcement would call fast food restaurants saying, hey, you know, there was an employee at your restaurant that stole the customer's purse or a wallet or something like that. They would talk to the manager and they would say, listen, we could go about this two ways. We could either go down to the restaurant, arrest, you know, your employee, take them back to the station and search them there. Or you could just take them to the back room and, and search them and see if they have the wallet. In that scenario, the managers, nine out of 10 times, would say, no, no, I'll just take the employee back there. I'll search them. You know, I'll ask them if they stole the wallet or whatever. So it seemed like the easy choice to do, right? But as the call went on, and these calls would last for like one or two hours, the caller posing as a cop would instruct the manager to strip search the employee, in some cases, making them jump in jumping jacks so that if they are hiding any money, it would fall out of their body cavity. And in some cases, actually asking the managers to sexually violate these young female employees. The one case that I covered took place outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and it was all caught on camera, on surveillance camera in the back room where you can't hear anything, but you could see the manager pick up the phone, bring in the employee. The manager got busy. It was a Friday night. You know, the, the restaurant was hopping. It was a McDonald's and the caller insisted that somebody must stay on the phone with this employee. So she's like, I'm going to call my fiance. He's going to come over and watch this girl while I work. And so the fiance came into the restaurant, started following the demands of the of the caller, and it ended up in sexually violating this girl. I mean, she performed oral sex on him, which is outrageous. So basically, these store managers went from being just store managers to some of them by the end of that call. Just because they pick up that call, now they're sexual offenders. And this is just a, a classic case of obedience. We are obedient. If we think somebody of authority is telling us to do something, we go pretty darn far to comply, which is nuts. I mean, we all think that that wouldn't happen to us, but there have been studies that show that we would do crazy things if we think somebody of authority is telling us to do it. I remember a few years ago, I watched the movie Compliance, and I did not realize when I was watching Don't Pick Up the Phone at first that Compliance is based off of what you're talking about. And I That's remember right. watching Compliance 
and thinking this is one of the scariest movies I've seen that doesn't involve anything paranormal or supernatural or gore. And I knew back then it was based off of true events, but part of me was thinking, no, I mean, this is Hollywood. They've elaborated on this. But after you watch the Netflix documentary, it's it's scarier. It's almost like they held back in compliance. It's almost so bizarre that when you watch it fictionalized, it's not as scary as watching the real thing. That, that documentary right. is rough. My wife had a hard time getting through episode one. It is really rough. So that series on Netflix was kind of based off of the first part of my prank series, but there was a whole other prank case that I was working with that same production company on trying to develop it into another documentary series. It is actually just as crazy. There was this group of punks that would meet online in these online forums called PrankNet. And I think originally they wanted to be like the jerky boys where they would call people and, and play pranks and ha ha, have a good laugh, you know? But it, it was almost like, um, like a drug addiction where, okay, well, the next laugh has to be even better and better and better. And to the point where it crossed the line from being funny to being plain sadistic. Even an ESPN reporter was staying at a Hilton in the middle of the night. She gets a call. She picks up the phone. She, the caller says that they're from the front desk, that there's been a gas leak in the hotel and that time is of the essence. She needs to break the window now in order to get air circulating again. They instructed her to get the toilet seat and to smash the window. And at three o'clock in the morning, this ESPN reporter smashing the hotel window, just completely trashing the place. In some cases, they would tell them, hey, you know, what is the tv plugged in oh yeah the tv's plugged in well hey that could cause an electrical spark and this whole place could blow up so grab the tv throw it out the window and they would grab the tv throw it out the window they would call kfc restaurants have the employees set off the fire alarms. They were thinking that they were setting, that they were testing the fire alarms, but they would actually set it off they're like hey did you get any of that chemical on your skin and they're like yeah yeah we did Oh, that's terrible. That's going to melt your skin off. You're going to have to strip naked in the parking lot and pee on each other. And people would actually do this. They were, and they would record these calls and post it on YouTube. And so my series kind of uncovered this prank network that was going on and tried to identify the actual ringmaster of it. It, it was nuts. But yeah, I mean, I, I get these story ideas all the time. Somehow I, I fell into the prank niche and the air guitar niche. Is there any prank that you come across or comes to you and you are not totally disturbed by it it doesn't go incredibly far and you're maybe a little bit impressed with how it went i don't like that question because i don't want to be like oh well i only get like the most sadistic stuff i mean every prank anybody who's affected by this stuff it's it's very disturbing and it and it plays mind games on you and it could be small or big like for instance i'm working on a story right now this guy is married his wife works at the lieutenant governor's office in georgia so she's a like a well-respected person she works for the lieutenant governor and she is using the lieutenant governor's office to catfish him to get like information off of him because they were going through a nasty divorce and she created all these characters and all this stuff. And just the commitment that some of these stalkers go through to, to mess with people is it, just mind boggling. You know, I get a lot of emails and granted, like you said, I'm not going to turn every single one of them in, into an episode, but you know, I, I appreciate that all those situations are real and the, the torment is real and like, I'll help them offline. I might not make it into an episode, but I'm going to help them out. We'll be right back after a quick, word from our sponsor. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. With this Don't Pick Up the Phone documentary and these calls, there was a lot of calls made, apparently, all across the country. For 10 years. And this happened over and over again. How many times do you know? We'll never know. That's the thing. We'll never know. The only reason why we know this is because because of this one case that really brought it to attention, uh, the attention to it. Because in most cases, like let's say fast food restaurant X, this happened. Corporate will come in, be like, "Hey, you know what? We'll take care of you. Here's some money. Sign this <laughs> this form. You're never going to talk about this again. I'm so sorry this happened. You know what I mean? Like, and they would just brush it." under the table. So when you ask me how many times has this happened? Within a 10 year span, this might have happened thousands of times. There's no yeah. way to know. The thing is that it didn't work every time. And just like that prank net thing that I was telling you about, this caller may have tried this prank thousands of times, but only was successful a handful of times, dozens of times. Not everyone will fall for it. Not everyone will go that far. Maybe people will bring the employee to the back room. You know, they ask them to take off their clothes and they're like, nah, that's, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. So he has to try again and call another fast food restaurant. Like you said, this happened all across the country. And when the Netflix show came out, I'm still getting emails from people who were like, hey, I used to work at a fast food restaurant and this happened to me. And so like people are still coming out of the woodwork. They don't wanna talk about it because this is embarrassing. I mean, this is, it's humiliating, you know? Yeah, it's kind of 
hard to describe too why i thought that this was real in this very small room for an hour or two i was able to talk to one of the managers that actually took part into this and and he felt really stupid and granted maybe people watching it or listening to this now are like yeah he was really stupid but remember this person was not a sexual offender before that call happened and he was trying to explain to me he's like you weren't there you don't know how convincing this guy was. He gave me a great analogy. He's like, it's like telling a joke. I could tell you a joke, uh, uh, set up punchline, boom, get it done really quick. Or I could tell you a joke and make it last and make it last and make it last. And that's how it was. It was like this joke that went on for a very, very long time. And and it's hard for us to appreciate how good this guy was. Yeah, I wonder how many times this was attempted and, and like the manager just hung up or said, all right, come on down then. One thing to take is to don't assume someone calling you is a police officer, even if they say so, because this was a successful prank in a lot of instances. It's nuts. I had to drive to Florida to do a story for my other podcast, Criminal Conduct. And along the way, I had to eat a lot of fast food, right? So my co-host, John and I, we would stop. Every now and then we would just stop at different states, different, you know, like these McDonald's or Taco Bells or whatever. And we would, we would order our food and we were like, Hey, by the way, have you ever heard of, of like this guy calling these stores and pretending to be a cop? Only one manager, like maybe we talked to like 20, only one was familiar with it. And that just tells you, I mean, a lot of people, when they watch the Netflix show, they're like, Hey, Javier, I, I guess you're never going to go to McDonald's again. Cause you really laid it on thick. You know, you beat them up. They knew about this stuff for 10 years. Okay. And I'm going around talking to their employees and their employees did not know about this. Okay. If this was a real problem, send that a fax, send the call, like train them. They need to know these things. How didn't that happen? That is one of the central questions, I think, in the documentary. Obviously, you know, you kind of said it like you think that they would just, a big corporate entity would just come in, sort of give some money, sweep it under the rug, make sure no one talks about it, and that's the best way for them to move on. But it's not because this keeps getting repeated over and over. So you're going to have to settle out of court to dozens of people now, apparently. And you're causing yeah. real life harm out there when. Really, you could have sent a memo. You could have sent an email. You could have trained your managers. Yeah, a jury agreed with you. They awarded the victim on the Louisville prank, and even the manager sued and won too. They they won millions of dollars because of McDonald's negligence, I guess. You know, they found them responsible for not training these people. But I'll tell you what, one thing that was not mentioned in the documentary, and I don't even know if I mentioned it on the show, but it's actually pretty important to note, even though I don't know this firsthand, the detective that was able to track down who the caller was, he told me that Wendy's corporate was very interested in solving this. And they financed all the expenses that that small police department had to fly over to, to Pensacola, Florida, to do whatever, because Wendy's wanted it solved. Wow. It is important to note, I think. Yeah, it is. And other fast food chains were obviously hit by this too. So it yeah. was a, a bigger Arby's, problem just one yeah. chain. Yeah, Hardee's, yeah. Do you think that the person or persons who make these calls, are any of them, in your opinion, law enforcement or have any ties to law enforcement? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, the guy from the Netflix show, The the Perpetrator, he was not convicted, okay? So um, the guy, the suspect that everyone thought did these calls he was a cop wannabe. He admired law enforcement. He worked in, in the jails as a correction officer. So he had this like cop complex. Uh, you know, I don't want to say that that's a general rule, but in his case, yeah. Um, in the other prank series that I did, those were just punks. 
I mean, they had no law enforcement ambition. From my experience, I don't see a pattern there, but it is an interesting example. What kind of template do you think was used here? Because clearly this caller was tapping into something that he had rehearsed and done over and over, and he knew certain things would go a certain direction, I guess, probably if you got past a certain point. Did you find that the template of calls were, were very similar? Oh, yeah, there was a lot of homework done. Okay, first of all, the caller would always describe a girl that was very generic. So a 5'4 brunette, I mean, come on, you know, like that could be anybody, right? In a way, he, he always picked somebody that could have been in that restaurant working that day. But the second thing he would do is he would call and he would get names of managers, of employees ahead of time, use social engineering to research who he was going to target before he targeted them. And that, that is actually something that I do find that's consistent with these prank callers. So in that other case that I did, the punks that were calling hotels and, and stuff like that, they would do a lot of research ahead of time and they would try the same technique and perfect it and perfect it and perfect it until they got it. I actually talked to one of the pranksters on my series and she described that process of like, they almost have like a creative meeting, like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. Well, how are we gonna do it? Okay, and then they test it out. Oh, well, next time let's do this. Let's change this part. And then they keep doing that and doing that until they really mastered it. So that, that I do see as something that's consistent between these. They're not just picking up the phone and doing a, a random cold call. Do you have any knowledge of the emotional state of some of the victims that were featured? This is probably the most conflicting part for me as it relates to this story is that when I did the, the podcast episode, I just used the victim's first names, Louise, because I didn't want to re-victimize her. She's been through enough, man. I mean, even though she won millions of dollars in the lawsuit, I mean, money cannot repay the emotional damage that was caused by this and the embarrassment. I mean, this made the news. I mean, it made a, a film like the you were compliance or whatever. So the Netflix series, they did decide to use her full name and they reached out to her and she was thinking about participating but you know she has kids now and she hasn't explained this to her kids and she ultimately declined to be a part of it and that's the only thing that, that i don't love about it is that like yeah this is interesting to us we're fascinated by this this netflix show was in the top 10 for a couple weeks and people talked about it for those two weeks because it was so interesting and so crazy but these are real people these are real people that their lives were destroyed the moment they picked up that phone and these managers too i would have to imagine you second guess yourself after being fooled like that on such a bizarre and kind of enormous scale like i was capable of that a lot probably all of them lost their jobs their friends like uh, the manager i talked to he lost he lost his friends i mean like who would trust somebody that's capable of doing that one of the guys went to jail and good for him because he crossed the line whether he believed that was a cop or not i mean he didn't need to do any of that stuff and those guys should have served some hard time but in a way these managers are victims too but you're right you can question law enforcement you don't always have to be a hundred percent in compliance with anybody who comes across in authority yeah and and you should know that regardless you don't have to be a, a mcdonald's manager to be aware of that right so like if a cop stops you know your rights know what they can do and what they can't do always ask for your lawyer i mean you should know these things because it is a good thing to trust authority it, law enforcement is a good thing to have to have a civil society or whatever and we are born and trained and raised to respect authority and we should but we should have a healthy amount of skepticism yeah we can't just bend over and do whatever they want us to do you know and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors 
No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Who do you think the caller, I guess, was looking for? Like, do you think there's something in the people who answered the phone, I guess maybe the managers of these restaurants, that this caller was familiar with, like some personality characteristic? Like, what made a good mark in this case, in your opinion? That's a good question. I mean, when you start zooming out, a lot of people couldn't zoom out for a while. It was happening here. It was happening in New Jersey and in Kansas. It was happening... But none of these people were connecting the dots, right? So it's hard to gain perspective. But knowing what we know now and being able to look at the cases that we know of, we know that this uh, hoax caller was, he was targeting small towns. So I keep saying Louisville, Kentucky, but it wasn't Louisville, Kentucky. It was a small town outside of Louisville, Kentucky, where probably working class people, people who, who are more inclined to respect authority than, than the other people would be. That was consistent. He would always target small towns. And so I think that that was his preference. He wasn't like calling a Taco Bell in, in downtown Atlanta or in Manhattan. Yeah, you'd have to imagine they would probably hang up. Well, maybe that's just us making generalizations. But in a busy city or a busy restaurant, I just think there's more people naturally around and less time to just like ignore your normal work duties. Or just say like, okay, well, come on down. You know, we're busy. Yeah. Come on down. I don't I, well, yeah, I yeah, so. yeah. You're if probably it was New York right City. About that. Yeah. They would have been like, come on down. I can't. I don't have time for this. And the overall theory consensus is that this is one particular person. Yeah. And I mean, that's the most frustrating thing. I don't want to spoil it for, for your listeners, but at the, oh, well, I am going to spoil it. I don't want to, but I am going to spoil it. <laughs> and I would get text messages from friends being like, hey, I'm almost done. Like they were giving me real time feedback. I'm like, I'm glad they caught this guy because it was great detective work. They finally isolated the suspect. They they got the calling cards. They found the phone booth that he made all the calls. The, he used the same calling card to call that McDonald's. I mean, we're thinking, oh, that's a smoking gun. 
and they found them not guilty, ultimately, which is nuts. I mean, they, they had the smoking gun, in my opinion. But I mean, it's mind-boggling that you're, I think your question was like, we found the guy, right? Well, hey, you know what? He's not guilty as far as the law is concerned, and he cannot get tried for that crime in that case again, you know? It was a great way to answer the question because I wasn't going to give a spoiler away because I don't want Netflix coming after me. So, Hey, Netflix, get in line. I got McDonald's coming after me, so get in line, right? <laughs> Seeing that this person was found not guilty, do you think that if this person is indeed guilty, is this emboldening them to do more and maybe they're escalating their hoaxes? It's kind of ironic that after this trial, after this guy, David Stewart, was named the suspect in this case, those calls suddenly stopped. I've yet to find another case that was similar to that. Did he quit? Criminals don't stop being criminals. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, I don't know of a new case. Is he doing something else? I traced him down. I, I know where, where he lives and I called and I talked to his brother. It seems like he's laying low. Okay, so you've added him to the list of people who are now going to be angry. So we got Netflix, we got McDonald's, and you have and this And the guy. stalker. Could you imagine if all these people that I report start <laughs> ganging up on me? I would have a very bad day. <laughs> yeah, please stay home. <laughs> Did you find any similarities in the Stuart Don't Pick Up the Phone Guy and the cyberstalking case that you're working on this series? Off the top of my head, it seems like it might be similarly difficult to pin something on a cyber stalker. Yeah, you know, I think that that McDonald's case kind of marks the end of a of an era of a payphone, phone book type of stalking. Now stalking has gotten exponentially worse. So like comparing the two is like comparing, you know, the Wright brothers playing to, you know, like a stealth bomber or something like that. Because now, I mean, technology, like I have a, I pay for a service where I got, five burner numbers that I could refresh and recycle whenever I want. I could torment the hell out of somebody. I use a VPN. The only way that you could trace those numbers is by subpoenaing the company that sold that number to another company that sold that number to another company. I mean, you're basically creating a nightmare scenario for law enforcement that they honestly don't have the resources. There's so many stocking cases that your run-of-the-mill police department cannot handle a lot of these cases. And, and you're going to hear that in my new series. I actually think that the detective that's working the case has actually gone above and beyond what most cyber stalking victims get when they deal with law enforcement. Do cyber stalkers or stalkers in general, in your experience, start off by stalking somebody that they know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, like, really know, not just yes, like, you know, really the... know. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is not the only stalking case that I've done. The, the McDonald's case, he obviously picked strangers. The prank net people that I told you, they picked strangers. But I've done another story. It, it was called The Cousins. And the stalker was terrifying. I mean, like, actually really, really terrifying. And it turned out to be somebody in the same room as the victim. I don't want to give it away, but like it was that close. And in the case that I'm working on now, it's somebody in that house. It's kind of like when when uh, there's a murder, everybody always points to the husband. Chances are it's not going to be some random serial killer that came by and swooped in, right? Like it's going to be someone, you know, it's the same thing with stalking. Yeah, I find the psychology behind stalking terrifying, but also interesting to explore. Speaking of that, the psychology behind stalking, what in your opinion is the 
end game for the stalker? Is it to bring the person to just a breaking point or do they actually intend to inflict harm? It's control. It's control. In the two cases that I'm working on now and the case, the cousins that I worked on before, they never crossed over to the physical realm. It was really all about dominance and being able to manipulate somebody and having that sense of, of superiority to, to that person. It's, it's crazy. And, and, you know, I, I cover a lot of con artists and you might ask yourself that same question about con artists. Like what drives them money? Yeah, sure. Money does, but con men are really good manipulators. There's a high that comes with that, with getting away with it and and being able to fool somebody. And do you find that these people who stalk are typically maybe the victim of bullying in, in school when they were kids? Or have you looked into that at all? I don't even feel like I'm qualified to answer that. But like I would, if I had to guess though, I feel like this emotional detachment when they're not like treating the people, their victims as real people, you know, they see them almost as objects. It's that kind of detachment that a serial killer might have. You know, it's like, there's some sort of psychosis happening, some sort of personality disorder that allows them to do this and and not feel empathy, right, for their victims. Javier, what's coming up next? Yeah, this cyber stalker thing kind of has my hands full for right now. After this, I'm going to do a series. I always do these how-to series. So I did one, uh, How to Disappear, where I teach you how to fake your own death or how to disappear from society. Well, now I got one called How to Commit Fraud. I'm going to teach you how to commit fraud because you know what? All the People that commit fraud know how to commit fraud, but you don't. So if you know what they're doing, then maybe you're better able to to protect yourself. So and I'm talking about like digital pit pocketing. We all love that, just waving our phone and paying for things, you know? Well, all these technological conveniences come with a price. The easier technology gets, the easier it is for a fraudster <laughs> to take advantage of you. So I'm doing that. I'm covering the case of Ana Montes, which is the Cuban spy that was probably one of the most notorious spies in American history that most people don't know about. And the reason why we don't know about it is because she got arrested right around the same time as 9-11. So we had bigger fish to fry. Like the media completely ignored her for the most part. This woman was spying, working directly with Castro in the U.S. government. She had access to classified files and she was uh, communicating with Havana and giving him all of our secrets and was always one step ahead of the U.S. government. And she was just released from prison this month, like last week. Really interesting story. So, yeah, I got a lot of stuff cooking, but I like to switch things up. You know, like I'm doing a lot of stocking, a lot of this and that, but I, I don't want the show to get monotonous. So I try to sh- shake things up. There's all kinds of different kinds of frauds, many different flavors <laughs> of con artists. Good job on getting the Cuban government. Good job getting on their bad side. All right, uh, Cuba, get in line. We got McDonald's, (laughs) Netflix. (laughs) I just have one more question. I'm curious if you have a hoax that you consider to be maybe one of the earliest ones because you'd mentioned the phone and technology. And I was thinking about people who would write bad checks because I was going to make a joke about Mm -hmm. writing bad checks, but there was no joke there to be made. So then I was thinking, well, what's an old hoax? What's an old con that you've come across? I don't do a lot of historical stuff, but I have done a couple just because it is fun to kind of think and see how cons have evolved and how much of it remains the same. So like the technology changes, but like the con is the same. The two that come to mind is a pig and a poke. Have you ever heard of that expression, a pig and a poke? Yes. (laughs) Do you know what that means? 
No, but I only know it because of uh, National Lampoon's European Vacation. They were on the uh, game show in the beginning. I think it was called Pig in a Poke. Yeah, and so a pig in a poke was when a fraudster would would have a bag with a little piglet. You know, you think you're buying a ba- uh, piglet, and when you open it up and get home and open it up, it's actually a cat. You know, it's just like a cat. And and so that's where the expression "you let the cat out of the bag" comes from. <laughs> so glad I asked that question. Yeah, yeah, and so these are techniques where you know that is the check fraud. You know, like the pig in a poke was what Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can was doing, right, writing bad checks, you know, and now it's Bitcoin is <laughs> FTX. You know, it's the, the technology evolves, but the con remains the same. And a con artist is always going to prey on your greed. Okay, so the victim is partly responsible for the con because if you say no, the con's over. The con only continues because you let the con artist in because somehow you saw a benefit to you. I've seen that throughout all the cases I've worked, not to victim blame, but like that is usually what happens. Well, I'm going to victim blame and say, come on, if you're going to pick up a pig and there's a cat in the bag. And then the pig goes oink, oink, and the cat goes meow. I never really bought into that. I don't even know if that's true. It's become folklore, right? And so another one that I, I thought of when you asked me that was salting a mine. Have you ever heard of that? Salting a mine? I've heard of a salt mine, but salting a mine. Basically, the scam there was you own this mine and you want people to think that it's full of diamonds or whatever, right? What you do is you take a shotgun and you know you blast it with so it can look all shiny and everything. And so then you sell the mine, but there's nothing there. You just salted the mine. And so that's another expression. I hope I got that right. It's the afternoon and the coffee hasn't kicked in. So so you might want to cut that one off. Well, Javier, thank you so much for joining us here today. We really appreciate your time and your stories. I think it's original and we appreciate you and all your work. Oh man, I appreciate you guys calling me up and asking me to do this because I love talking with you guys. And this is just a good excuse to do so, so. Javier, if that is your real name, (laughs) I will never tell. 